Hi, everybody. My name is Tommy, and I'm an alcoholic. I want to thank you, Shirley, for giving me the opportunity of speaking at this conference. It's always a privilege to speak at an AA meeting. It helps me to remember what it was like and what it is like now. You know, a lot of the people that I was introduced when I came here this afternoon told me, ah, this, this is easy for you. It's a piece of cake. You know, I've got butterflies since 2 o'clock this afternoon, and I still got them. Never get rid of them, I guess. As Dave B. and Alcoholics Anonymous, our founder in Quebec, always said that you stop being nervous and you're in trouble. So I'm going to tell you my real name, and I think you're a keep it anonymous, don't tell anybody. It's Joseph Thomas Robert Aloysius McKetrick. <laughs> And I've been called other names, too. (laughs) I'm a father of five children. Married for 55 years. To the same woman, by the way. (laughs) And I'm 75. Just turned it. Last week, life is good for me. It's been good. I love you to all you people here. Without you, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't have a family. I'm going to tell you, Alcoholics Anonymous works. When I walked through these doors of Alcoholics Anonymous in 1953, you gave me hope. And you told me if I can stay sober one day at a time, I can live a normal life. And God bless you all that came before me. I would like to tell you that all my problems were caused through alcoholism. I have to admit that I got myself into a lot of trouble without even taking a drink. You see, I was a tough guy when I was a kid, you know. Growing up in an Irish Catholic family. First person that I ever detested was my father. He was a sailor, sailed the seas for many, many years. Apparently, he'd never seen me till I was two years old. Far back as I could remember, he used to come home and he was constantly drunk. Never, no communication. Very abusive man. And I said, when I was young, I'm gonna, when I get older, I'm going to fix that man. I did a lot of stealing. I hung around with gangs. I was leader of the gangs. I was a tough guy. You know, in those days, they used to have these comic books. You know, but all these gangsters, I was infatuated with them. But at near the end, the cops used to take over. 
and capture these gangsters. And I never read that part. I ripped them out. <laughs> I fantasized going down St. Catherine Street in the Cadillac with two blondes beside me, you know. Christ, I stole a, a pound of butter out of the AMP and got caught. Nineteen thirty nine, back when the day the war was declared, my father happened to be at home at this particular time. And he went up and joined the Royal Canadian Navy. He was thirty nine. He came home and he told me that I was the oldest of the family. I want you to help your mother to look after your brothers and sisters because I'm going away. And when he left the house, I was very happy to see him go. And it was just a little while later that I got expelled from school for hitting a teacher where he wasn't supposed to be hit. And no school in the city of Montreal would take me, both Catholic and Protestant. So I went out to work in a shoe factory. I had to get a permit from my mother I made 15 cents an hour and I was supposed to bring this money home when I got paid because my father was only an able seaman and there wasn't too much money with a large family. And I remember getting my first pay. We got it in cash. Just before I was leaving the factory, there was a crap game on. And I got into this crap game and I lost all my money. And I went home and I told my mother that somebody died at work and we had to buy a reef. And it seemed to me that every Friday somebody was dying at work. (laughs) So I lied before I ever took my first drink. A little later on I got into the aircraft division at Canadian Vickers and I made more money. I used to go to a dance called the Roseland every Saturday night. We used to meet in the pool room. And we'd go up to this dance called the Roseland, the center of Montreal. And I used to like going there. I loved dancing. I still do. But I was hanging around with a guy from Edmonton. He was working in the same place as I was working in. He's a little older than me, and uh, one Saturday night, before we went to the dance, he went down to the corner where I lived, and he said, Tommy, you wait outside, I'm going in the liquor store. And he came out with these couple of bottles, he said, Tommy, come on, I'll give you a drink, come on around the back lane. Ah, why not? I went around the back lane and I started to consume some of this liquor that he bought. I don't know what the hell I drank. But I could remember the following morning I was laying on my mother's dining room floor and violently sick. I don't even remember how I got home. And I guess anybody that drank the way I drank the first time. And I could remember that day and that's many years ago and promised my mother this is what liquor is.
15 years old, I decided that I was going to go and join the Army. I wasn't going to go in the Navy. My old man was there. No way. So I went up with the guy that I took my first drink with, and he was old, as of age, and he got in. And the sergeant asked me how old I was, and I told him I was 18. And he said, well, where's your birth certificate? You don't look 18. Oh, I'm 18. Well, I said, well, I was born in Ireland. And the baptismal papers were all burnt in the church. There's no record of it. Well, he said, go home and get a statement from your mother that you're 18. Come back and see us. That's when I walked out of here. I didn't even know where the hell Ireland was. So I went home and I asked my mother to write out a paper that I was 18 that I wanted to join the Reserve Army. Okay, she thought that keep me off the streets and doing these things that I wasn't supposed to do and she signed the paper. And I went down to St. James Street and went into the recruiting office with this paper. You know, 1942, they didn't question you too much. They wanted bodies and told me to go into the back and get an examination by the doctor's ears and eyes going through. Passed it all. Completed it and he told me to sit down on the bench. There's an army truck will pick you up and bring you over to Long Gale with a bunch of other fellows. And I went over to Long Gale and they gave me a uniform with a black tan and uh, oh, I thought I was something. And they told me to go home and report back to Long Gale the next day. So I got to walk across Yakarchi Bridge and I took the streetcar and I went home. And I get off the streetcar and I go up St. Clement Street with my chest sticking out and my arms swinging. And my brothers and sisters are playing all around on the front of the house and they're saying, oh, look at my old brother, he joined the army. And my God, I thought it was going to be the greatest hero that Canada ever had. One day in the army. And I explained to my mother that I wasn't going to go overseas, etc., etc. And I guess with bringing up a large family and worrying about her oldest boy and her husband away in the Navy, she didn't question me, but if you go overseas, I'll get you out. So I reported back to Long Gale and they sent me out to a place called Hind uh, Quebec, which is outside of Montreal, about 40 miles. And I thought that this was miles and miles away from home, you know. Forty miles was a long way when you're a boy. And when they gave us our huts and they told us there wasn't much to do. And uh, you can go down to the town and uh, everything will happen the next day. So we went down to the town and a bunch of the guys, the Shadow Hotel. I got in there and I had a beer and I had two and I got stronger and I got stronger and my mouth got worse and worse. And, and then the next thing there's a big brawl and I get into it and I get beat up. And, uh, and the regimental police came down and they brought us back to the camp and they threw me under a shower and they threw me into one of the cells to cool it off. And I remember the staff sergeant in the next day coming into that cell and trying to talk to me, and he says, young man, if you continue on what you did last night, you'll get yourself into a lot of trouble. Forty-year-old man telling me. 
but he was right. Later on, I found out that every word that he said was right. But you know, Tommy McKettrick was cocky. He knew all the answers. And then they shipped me out to Dundurn, Saskatchewan after doing my basic training and I learned how to drive tanks and all the heavy equipment in the Army. And I tried the Saskatchewan booze out there and I got drunk on that too. <laughs> and every opportunity that I had, I drank. You don't drink every day when you're only making a buck thirty a day, but every opportunity that I had, I drank. I completed that and I went to ship down to a place called Windsor, Nova Scotia for a draft for overseas. Fifteen years old. It was the same thing down there. You know, I was a loner. I always thought that you had to have a drink to make company. And I think alcoholics are loners, really. And then they put me on a ship called the Ile de France about three weeks after I was there. A lot of Air Force personnel on this ship, New Zealanders, Australians, all the Commonwealth countries came over to Canada to learn how to fly. And wasn't too many Army personnel on this troop ship. It took us about five days to get over the Atlantic Ocean. While I was on this, on this ship, I got into a crown and anchor game and I won $600. That was a lot of money for a guy making a buck thirty a day. And in the wee hours of the morning, we arrived in Liverpool and there was a big raid on and uh, shit, I didn't want to get off the ship. I wanted to come home. <laughs> this is for real. But you don't do these things, and you put me on it. They put me on a troop train, and they shipped me down to a place called Woking, Surrey. I was holding you with the reconnaissance, and they relieve all these people doing card, uh, kitchen petite, card duty, etc. And they, they put me in the sergeant's mess as a waiter, so these other fellows can go to regiments. My God, I hated sergeants, and they put me in there. Pretty good job, 15 shillings a month for being a waiter in the sergeant's mess. I turned all this Canadian money into English pounds, paymaster. I had a pass from duty to duty, and I could leave the camp at any time as long as I was back for the meals. And then I get into these pubs, and I thought that they're all marvelous, marvelous places, old and mild. And I would get drunk. And I would crawl back into camp. But I did something different this time. I'm in a pub, a place called Knapp Hill, standing at the bar. And I'm half sloshed. And I look down and I see this beautiful looking girl. And I take another drink and she's gorgeous. And I went down and I asked her for a date, and she said, sure, why not? I fell madly in love. I was 16 and she was 42. <laughs> if she's still alive, she must be 108 now. 
You talk about insanity. Normal people don't do those things. But I was off after the regimental sergeant major. I said, sir, I didn't join this army to be a waiter. I want to go to a regiment. He says, we'll decide, not you. Eventually, they sent me to a Montreal regiment, the 17th Duke of York's Royal Canadian Nazars. I went over on D-Day, and I was over there for approximately six weeks, and I was shipped back to Canada, uh, England with a nervous fatigue. And they put me in a Canadian military hospital, a place called Bramshot. And in those days, we used to wear a blue suit and a white, tie, white shirt and a red tie. And I was allowed to leave the hospital, and I would go down to these pubs around there, and they knew I came back from the continent, and I used to have a lot of free drinks. And even if I came back to the hospital drunk around, they were pretty lenient. But one night I got a little too drunk and I said, to hell with the hospital and to hell with the Canadian Army and I went AWL. And I went and I was gone for five months. I'm not going to put you through what I went through in those five months, but I was sick and tired of what I was doing, and I turned myself over to the British Provo Corps, and they turned me over to the Canadians, and from there I went to the hospital, to the holding unit. And after your 21 days, the colonel can't punish you. So you're sentenced to a field general court-martial for desertion. Two years in Headley Downs. They escorted me down to Headley Downs, to Provo Corps with all my equipment, battle dress, and they let me off at the gate. They took over from there, and they put me into the quartermaster, and they stripped me. They took my cigarettes off of me, and they took my battle dress, and they gave me denims with circles around it. Now I'm an SAS soldier under sentence. And any time that you talk to the officers, you have to put your face to the wall and call them sir, but I was a tough guy. I called them different names than sir. But you don't do these things when you're a soldier under sentence, so you're punished. And you're brought up in front of the commandant. If I behaved myself, I would have done 16 months, but I lost all my good time for various charges, caught smoking, caught talking, etc., etc. And then all the good time was lost. They had to give me some other charges for different charges. I was brought up in front of the commandant. 21 days PD-2. Marched the man out, put him in number 10 shell block, punishment block. They take my shoelaces off me, they take my belt away, they give me a pelly ass. And every half hour they came out and they used to throw water all over it. And I was a tough guy, I used to spit in their face. And I get another 21 days bread and water. You talk about insanity. VE Day was declared while I was in there. And from 28 days to five years for various charges. And when VE Day was declared, we found that the war was over and a couple of guys in the hut went, Whippy, the war's over, we're going home. And the next thing you know, they're out of the huts and they're going around the parade square and they're smashing everything. A couple of the guys says, let's go and get McKittrick. And they get into the punishment block and they take in there and they take me out and they made me the leader. Oh, I was tough, all right. And I escaped over the wall, and I got in Dellershot, England. I stole the sergeant's uniform, and four days later, I was picked up in a pub in London. 
And I was escorted back to Headley Downs. We couldn't sleep there, so they sent me down to an English prison called Ravengallo. And the charge was laid against me with attempted mutiny. And in the king's rules and regulations, attempted mutiny, you can be shot for it. I was 17 years old. That charge was dropped to incite a riot. And they gave me three years hard labor in Ravengallo. I completed the year of that, and I was shipped back to Canada with a discharge with ignominy from His Majesty's forces. They wouldn't even allow me to be discharged in a Canadian uniform. I was four years and six months in the Canadian Army, and I never rode home once. And they told me to get the hell out of here. They gave me a $100 clothing allowance, and that's all I ever got. And I walked across Yakarchi Bridge and I had to face my family for the first place that I headed to was a tavern and I had some booze in me. And when I got this booze in me, I was okay. I used to go, went home, walked into my mother's home and threw my discharge papers on the kitchen table and I said, Ma, I got myself into a lot of trouble. And she said, Tommy, you're a boy. You didn't realize what you were doing. You're home now and we'll forget all about it. I wish I could say that that was the end of it, but that was the beginning of my downfall. You see, my father got discharged as a lieutenant commander in the Royal Canadian Navy. And he had a very good war record. And they invited all my uncles and aunts and cousins and everything for the prodigal son and they followed back from the wars. And I got drunk and I struck my father. And I was thrown out of the house. And I went up to live with my grandfather, who I admired very much. Montreal in 1946 was wide open, the red light districts and the barbuck joints and the whole shot. And I get involved in this and come crawling back to my grandfather and he would put me to bed and everything, but he made sure that I went down to St. Pat's every Sunday morning. And one Sunday afternoon, I'm sitting in my grandfather's living room and I'm sick from booze. And he came walking in and he said, uh, Tommy, I know you're fond of dancing. Why don't you go over to that little dance hall across the road? And I had nothing to do and he gave me five bucks and I went across to this dance hall called the Palador. And I walked in there and there wasn't too many people in there, but there was a hall, something like this, in this beautiful black-haired girl was standing in the corner all alone and I asked her, walked up to her and I asked her if she would dance with me. And we danced and I asked her if I could walk her home. And I walked her home. And I asked her if would she come to the movies with me the following night and she did. That was in April of 1946. I drank while I was out with Edith, but I stayed away. I don't know if it was love. I was immature and everything, but thank God it worked out okay. We were married on the 21st of December, 1946. I was 20 years old and my wife was... Oh, I better not say it. <laughs> Thank you.
I told her a bunch of lies about me and everything. Uh, and from that day of the 21st of December up until 1953, I put that woman through hell. Do you ask me of Alcoholics Anonymous works? You know, I was in and out of jails for drunk, insulting a waitress in a restaurant, doing all these things. I even did 30 days here in Ottawa for sleeping on the CNR station. Left my wife in the hospital with our firstborn. Got drunk and I winded up here. 30 days. And after I did those 30 days, I decided if I went out west and I would phone Edith and we'll get all together and everything would work all out all right. It was my family and her family interfering. You talk about insanity. I was gone for four or five months. I was doing life on the installment plan. Ten days here, fifteen days here, Kenora, Ontario, Dryden, all these places. Winded up in Winnipeg, sleeping in the CPR coaches and picked up there and brought into the jail. And the next thing they gave me was a floater. Twenty-four hours to get out of town or six months. And they took me to the city limits and came back to Montreal and walked into my mother's house and my mother's mining our boy. And I said, Ma, take me in. I won't drink no more. And I'll look after Edith, and I'll look after Keith. And she came back, and she tried it again. And I stayed off of booze maybe a month, but you know, alcoholics and alcoholic. And I get back into it. And when Sharon was born, the more responsibilities I had, the more I drank. And do you ask me of Alcoholics Anonymous works? My God, you people are beautiful, taking me in and making me what I am today. And when Timothy was born, and the more responsibilities I had, the more I drank. That bottle became my God. I lied. I have a hard time with my wife sitting there, but please uh, bear with me. And when Brian was born, it was the same thing. The promises, the lies, and the cheats. And she would take me back, have me arrested for non-support, all these things. I'm going to take you up to my last drink up until today. It was March the 17th, 1953. What a day. I was working in Canadian Vickers and my wife is expecting our fifth child. I have to celebrate St. Patrick's Day. I celebrated St. Andrew's Day. I celebrate St. Jude's Day. I celebrate Yom Kippur and Christmas. And I come out of Canadian Vickers and I get across the street and I have this check, you know, 2%. 
my pay and everything. I don't know how much it was. And I go into this little store in between the dry dock and the tavern. And I go in there with my lady, Mrs. Bremer, who were, I was great friends with her son. He played for the Alouettes for many years. And I said, Mrs. Bremer, would you mind cashing this check? I have to bring it home. We have to buy groceries. Now, Tommy, I'll cash it if you bring it. Yes, Mrs. Bremer. So I came out of there and I went into the dry dock. I had a few there. Into the welcome had some there. Over to the VD had some there. Into the White House had some there. What the hell with this? I'm going uptown. All these clubs I hung around. I was in the drummer's cafe and I knew that I had a little bit of money on me and I said, I'd better go home with what I got left. Now, I don't remember, you know, sometimes, you know, in our our drinking stupor we forget. Well, this is one of these days that happened to me. I come out of the drummer's cafe and there's a taxi in front. I get into the cab. No driver in front, but the motor's running. So I get out of the back and into the front. And apparently I maneuvered this vehicle down as far as Mountain Dorchester and I wrapped it around a pole. I wake up in number one police station. They got me in a corner. How many cars did you see? I said, I don't know what the hell I was doing. Cops, you know, one good cop, one bad cop. I'm not brave anymore. I'm crying. I'm scared. Well, he says, yeah, look, at you just tell me. I look at I just didn't know what I was doing. I Just give me a drink of water. and That's all I want. I took a drink of water and I threw up everything. And I, oh, God, I'll never forget that day. And I get up in front of Judge Rainey Lagar. I have no lawyer to defend me. And I, and I said, sir, would you please let me go home? I won't drink no more. I didn't know what I was doing. And for, I promise you, Judge, Judge Rainey Lagarde, I'll never drink again. He looked at me. He said, you're not going home. So I want the, you to phone your wife that I want to see her in my chambers the following week. I'm going to put you in Bordeaux. So they allow me one telephone call and I phone my sister because we didn't have a phone. And I said, fellas, I'm in a hell of a jam. Would you mind telling Edith uh, that I, I'm charged with stealing a car that Judge Rainey Lagar wants to see him see her in his chambers on Champ de Mars? And Edith said to fellas, I ain't going. The next week I brought down in front of Judge Rainey Lagar. And he looked at me. He didn't believe a word I said. Two years in St. Vincent de Paul Penitentiary. The third week after I arrived in there, my wife presented me with a baby girl. Now I want to tell you a little bit about the miracles of Alcoholics Anonymous. I belong there. At least my kids were getting fed. Their father was out drinking all the bloody money he earned. While I was in there, Oh, I had a lot of, why wasn't she there? I wouldn't be here and all this stuff. I was interviewed by the John Howard Society in there. And I remember going into this man's office. They picked me up at my cell and brought me into this office, John Howard Society. 
This man asked me to sit down and he had all my records in front of him. Or at least duplicates. And he said, young man, it seems to me that you get yourself into a lot of trouble while you're under the influence of alcohol. Would you like to go to AA? I said, what the hell is that? Well, he said, you know, it's uh, it's an organization that might help you. I said, I'm 25 years old. I don't need that shit. And I walked out of that man's office and the guard took me back to my cell. And when I went back to my cell, I got down on my knees and I asked my God for help. And that was the first time I ever done that since I was nine years old. Father of five kids, what's going to happen to them? Drunken husband and father in there, what's going to happen to them? I had to get permission to see my wife and baby that I had never seen. And I had to go up in front of the warden for permission to see my daughter that I never seen. And I walked in Warden LaBelle's office and I said, Sir, I want to have permission to see my daughter that I have never seen. And sir, can I go to way A? And he looked at me. And I don't know whether the John Howard Society and the warden was uh, in cahoots, but he said, you had the opportunity to go before. What made you change your mind? I said, sir, I'm sick and tired of this life I'm leading. I'd like to go. I don't know what I'm getting myself into, but I want to go. He said, I'll think about it. He said, I'll give you permission to see the baby that you've never seen. My wife brought the baby up to St. Vincent de Paul Penitentiary and she put that baby in my arms. One of the reasons why I came to where Sitting right there. It was 48 years ago. I said, Edith, don't come back here. And about a week after that guard came to my cell to bring me over to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous in the year 1953. I'll never... Never will I ever forget that first meeting that I attended. It was about 15 cons. 10 o'clock in the morning, Sunday morning. I'm sitting down there. I don't know what I'm getting myself into. The sponsor of the group was late because the buses were late. The weather was late. And he didn't get in there until about 10.30. And my impressions with Alcoholics Anonymous, I could remember that man as if it was yesterday. He came walking in and stood up in front of us. And when I heard about that first meeting, he said it. I'm sorry, fellas. I couldn't get here on time because the buses were late. And my impressions with Alcoholics Anonymous, here's a man leaving his family and his whatever to come up and see a bunch of characters like me. I think I'll stick around. And I did. And I went to that meeting every Sunday morning. And these people from the outside gave me hope. They came over and carried the message. 
on February the 9th, 1954, I was called into the warden's office and they gave me a ticket of leave. And on that ticket of leave in big red letters, abstain from alcohol and provide for your family. And Warden LaBelle said to me, don't you ever come back here. And when I walked out of there, those two big doors slammed on me. And I turned around and I said, my God, I'm not never coming back here. Because you people turned me into a human being for the first time in my life if you ask me of Alcoholics Anonymous works. And I went home to my wife, five kids. I had them in staff house. And when I walked in there, my little boy, my middle boy came running him up to me and he says, you must be my daddy because my mommy tells me you're off the tall. And I didn't take off my coat and I went into Edith and I said, I'm going down the central office of Alcoholics Anonymous. I was scared. And I took the streetcar and I went down the central office and I walked in there. And a lady by the name of Barbara, who was our secretary at that time, welcomed me in, and I have been welcomed into Alcoholics Anonymous ever since. And you ask me if Alcoholics Anonymous works? How can I ever tell you what's happened to me in the 48 years, so much months that I've been sober? God, I had a beautiful life. I have a lovely family. I have everything that a man would want. I'm not the man that I would like to be, but I'm a hell of a better man than I used to be. And they told me, like they're telling the people, go to meetings. Don't drink. Keep it simple. And things will get better. And they got better. And I got a job, and I brought my money home to my wife, and we moved out of there. We moved into an apartment. And I got a better job and a better job and I went to meetings and I went to meetings. I was infatuated with you people that came before me. God, you were beautiful. Took me into your homes. Never questioned me where I came from or what how much money I had or anything. I can tell you a lot of I can Stand up here for another two hours and tell you all the miracles that have happened to me that I know it's getting late. I'd like to tell you a little bit about what's happened to me over the years. You know that man that I struck, my father? My mother was separated from him and she went to live with my brother in Toronto. You have to make amends in Alcoholics Anonymous and I had to make amends to my father. He gave me life. He was in St. Anne de Bellevue for chronic alcoholism. But I hadn't enough nerve to go up there by myself and I went with one of my sisters. And the only thing I could tell my father, and I never laid eyes on him for long, many years, I walked in there and I said, Dad, I'm sober five years and I'm in AA. That's good, Tommy. I'm happy for you. Well, four or five months, he was released from St. Anne's and he was allowed to live with my sister as long as he didn't drink. And one Tuesday night, I got a phone call from my father and he said, Tommy, I'd like to go to one of these meetings with you. And as soon as he said that, I rushed out of the house and took the bus and got my father and I brought him to his first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. 
stayed sober for 17 years in Alcoholics Anonymous. We became father and son and brothers in Alcoholics Anonymous. Tell you a little bit more about that miracle. My mother went back to him. And my mother kept telling me, she died a couple of years ago, Tommy, I had the most beautiful life with your father, 17 years, and we had a beautiful life. Isn't AA great? Isn't the people in AA great? I'm going to close now and just give you two or three more minutes about my children. My beautiful family. My oldest boy is going to be 54. Married to a beautiful French-Canadian girl. He he helps me out a lot. Uh, Not very much of a mechanic and he's doing everything around the house. Owns his mother every day. That was a boy that I left in the hospital. My daughter Sharon, she teaches She teaches at the university in B.C. She helps the immigrants to learn English, etc. Wonderful job. And that boy that came running up to me that day when I came out of the penitentiary is six foot four now. Big, tall, good-looking kid. Married to a beautiful French-Canadian girl. And my boy, Brian, married to an Italian. She's a lawyer. If so, if I get my trouble in trouble, I'll have a lawyer. <laughs> Two girls and a boy together. Last but not least, the daughter that was born in the penitentiary when I got sober is sitting down here. And she's married to a hell of a nice guy. I ain't going to drink today. You know why I'm not going to drink today? Because I'm going to walk with my hand in the hand of God. Thank you. I firmly believe that uh, the thanker shouldn't be a second speaker, and uh, especially tonight, because uh, the power of this wonderful talk would be thoroughly spoiled by too many words. Everything came from the heart. Every time I've ever heard Tommy speak, that's the way it's been. I'm very, very happy, Tommy, that uh, we belong to this loving, wonderful fellowship, and I'm very happy that I've known you all these years, one day at a time. You've been a prime example for me of what sobriety is at its best. And on behalf of the conference committee, the whole conference and everyone in this room, I'd like to present you with just this small token of our appreciation for you coming to talk to us tonight.
everyone knows this book. And this is the book that's going to be presented on Sunday to the person who has the least amount of sobriety, which, you know, could be one day, could be whatever it will be. This book will be presented to that person at Countdown. And um, we're going to leave it here after the meeting. We've already started to sign it. And as many as would like to, please come up and put your name in the book for whoever it is that's going to get it. And I just handed me this note, uh, Terry, and uh, I've already told everyone that the tapes will be outside. Okay, good. Now that's it for this evening. Um, we're going to have wonderful talkathon in the Victoria Room. After no, it's going to be here, isn't it? It's going to be here. Yes. Last year it was in uh, the Victoria Room. This has been uh, a true and a real joy for me this evening. It's been again, it's been such a pleasure to work with the conference committee. And uh, my job is now over. I can relax, and I'm going to have a ball for the rest of the weekend. And for those of you who wish, would you please help me close this meeting with the Lord's Prayer? Whose Father, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Keep coming back.